Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 35, Lion's Roar, The Camp Jackson Affair. Even as Lincoln felt the rising tide of secession beginning to strangle Maryland, though coming from a determined minority, so too the state of Missouri, gateway to the West, faced its own desperate challenge. Missouri Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson had a long history of supporting slavery in general, and had continued as a close ally of prominent Southern Democrats, in advancing the cause of slavery in Kansas in particular. During the state election, he campaigned under the banner of moderation, but almost immediately began a more secret campaign, one of cooperation with Jefferson Davis. As governor, Jackson appears to have been intent on secession from an earlier date than any other leader in the Upper South, let alone the border states. We've already seen how he openly resisted Lincoln's call for troops and explicitly identified Missouri as a southern state. On this latter point, he was indeed partly correct, yet this was not the whole truth. Missouri was a mixing ground, a slave state, yes, and yet slavery only held sway in limited areas of the state. Plantations existed, but they weren't nearly as significant to the state's economy compared to the lower Mississippi region. Slavery here held tightly to an odd pattern. It existed near the Mississippi and Missouri rivers only. Even there, some counties had so few slaves as to render the peculiar institution nigh irrelevant. The entire northern and southern portions of the state had very few slaves as well, with some counties reporting virtually none at all. Likewise, Missouri controlled and benefited from the trade towards the growing western territories such as Kansas, and its economy was increasingly dependent on manufacturing and trade with the nearby free states. St. Louis and its environs had few slaves to mention, and perhaps little desire for them. For all that border ruffians might rage out on the western frontier, there appeared no very great enthusiasm for a slave empire in the gateway city. Finally, Missouri held a very large German immigrant population, which had settled all over the Midwest, and these people looked with a deep suspicion at slavery and slaveholders. These men and women were not yet prominent voices simply because few American-born citizens at that time spoke or read the ethnic newspapers, but the German community held firmly to abolitionism from the start. Secession changed their usually quiet attitude, in part because many had come over to the United States in search of the freedom they lacked in Europe. They were not going to let America fall to pieces without a struggle. So too, if slavery caused this split, then so much the better to discard it. Amidst all this still, Governor Jackson began to push openly for allying Missouri to the Confederacy, even in the early days of secession. He summoned a state convention to speedily accomplish this following the fall of Fort Sumter and Lincoln's call for troops, which Jackson defied publicly. He hoped the convention would follow the lead of Virginia and quickly join the sunny South. Unfortunately for Governor Jackson, he received an unpleasant surprise on the subject, for the convention turned out to be rather conservative-minded on the topic. They rejected joining the Confederacy by a massive margin. All the secessionists could show for it was a reluctance to openly back Lincoln, but like Kentucky, this represented more desire to halt the drift towards civil war than a truly neutral stance. 
never one to be deterred by basic logic and certainly not good sense, Governor Jackson then began to secretly plan a way to drag his state into the Confederacy by hook or by crook. Fortunately for Lincoln, the state of Illinois, Missouri Unionists, and the United States of America in general, Governor Jackson discovered to his chagrin an opponent worthy of respect, Congressional Representative Francis Blair. The Blair family requires some amount of introduction. This family of Missouri Republicans on the rise represented the most conservative branch of the party. In many ways, they occupied the same ground that Thomas Hart Benton had just a decade prior. However, the changing political scene made their natural home the new Republican Party instead of the Democrats. From their St. Louis political base, they had strongly supported Abraham Lincoln early on, and had reaped the rewards. Now Montgomery Blair occupied the office of Postmaster General. In itself, that job conferred little power, but as a cabinet position, conferred a great deal of influence with relatively light duties, making it a perfect option for someone the president wanted to keep close and active on political matters. Francis Blair, on the other hand, had no sooner returned to Missouri following the end of the congressional season in Washington when he found himself with a large task on his hand. He remained as intent on keeping his home in the Union as Claiborne Fox Jackson was for secession, and Blair had the means as well. At the heart of the conflict lay the city of St. Louis, dominating the upper Mississippi, and the federal arsenal there. The arsenal held enough munitions to equip an army, with well over 30,000 modern muskets and the necessary artillery. As an additional prize, it held a massive trove of cartridges and powder. Several other federal arsenals, including the famous Harper's Ferry location, had been lost to Confederate forces already. Yet the St. Louis arsenal was particularly valuable. It was one of the largest armories in the entire country because it had been the staging point for virtually every army fort, expedition, and patrol into the West for years. It had a large, well-developed infrastructure and a great deal of equipment and the facilities to make use of them. If the arms and equipment stored in St. Louis fell into the hands of secessionists, it risked instantly tipping the balance of power in a state and region critical to control over the Mississippi, a vital artery of national and even international commerce. This could effectively destroy any Union campaign to restore the United States before it even began. Blair recognized the threat given that Governor Jackson was quietly raising State Guard militia and the arsenal appeared an obvious target. He countered it by recruiting a home guard of his own. Effectively a half-public, half-private army, Blair next called upon the regular army for some additional muscle and leadership. And here the Union cause received two great strokes of fortune. First, had Blair not been in close contact with the Lincoln administration, it's possible this aid might have arrived too late, or not at all. And second, the leadership showed up in the person of Captain Nathaniel Lyon. Lyon, born in 1818, had a solid military career fighting in the Seminole Wars and later the Mexican-American War. Like most young American officers, his career advancement effectively stalled cold in the decade between then and the Civil War, simply for lack of any ranks to advance into. More than that, however, 
Lyon was a hard-driving Connecticut-born man who openly sympathized with anti-slavery forces in Kansas, making him a bit of an oddity in the pre-war army. Many officers held quietly anti-slavery views, but few of them clearly aligned with abolitionists. In fact, Lyon declaimed so loudly and passionately on the topic that he annoyed even sympathetic comrades in uniform. A fellow officer once described him as narrow-minded and mentally unbalanced, in the very same breath as asserting Lyon to be honest to the core and intelligent. Events proved all those judgments thoroughly correct. But in the bargain, Lyon also happened to be a consummate military professional. Congressman Blair brought Lyon in specifically due to perceiving a lack of fortitude on the part of the ranking federal officer in St. Louis, General William S. Harney. Now, Harney, an old soldier with a much more easygoing temperament than the high-strung Lyon, displayed no great energy in this moment. That said, it's also unclear if he was aging and vacillating, or perhaps merely wished to avoid sparking secessionist resistance. To his credit, General Harney had a very long and colorful career, in which he proved a capable fighter, but possibly one with a mean streak the size of a mad bear. Mad Bear just so happened to be the nickname the Lakota Sioux applied to him owing to his penchant for brutal violence and extremely mobile, aggressive attacks. Harney's long service in the army saw repeated examples of him reaching into levels of violence that shocked those around him. That said, he was also capable of peacemaking as well, and concluded multiple treaties once the war-making ceased. He may have been a warrior, but not an altogether dishonorable one and he served as a negotiator even after the Civil War. Harney received his promotion to Brigadier General in 1858, joining a very small, and mostly rather old, club of officers. At the dawn of the Civil War, however, his true sympathies on the subject of secession appeared murky to others, or at least not clear enough to satisfy the clearly Union men, such as Blair. Regardless of what anyone felt, the aging General Harney was not the man to deal with the task at hand. But fortunately, Nathaniel Lyon appeared on the scene at the right moment to take charge. In fact, Frank Blair hand-picked the fiery Lyon to manage the worrying situation in Missouri, bringing in two companies of the regular Army soldiers in January of 1861. Once Lincoln took office, Blair almost immediately asked to have Lyon promoted and given command of the arsenal. Nathaniel Lyon's first task was to deal with the matter of the vulnerable arms stored there. Just after the fall of Fort Sumter in April, Governor Jackson arranged to move up several cannon from Confederate sources in Louisiana, intending to use them, alongside freshly drilled militia, to seize the arsenal. The entire gang began to train boldly, practically outside the front door of the armory. So Lyon decided to move the armaments under his care across the river to the friendlier and safer soil of Illinois, but that required a considerable amount of transportation. Seeing a pro-Confederate threat developing in St. Louis, Lyon decoyed them with a few boxes containing nothing more than obsolete muskets packed away since the War of 1812. On April 25th, a roaring crowd of secessionists grabbed the worthless bait, while Lyon and his men slipped most of the real goods away and over the river cleanly. The remaining arms went out to Blair's home guard militiamen, and with good timing. They would be required very soon.
Blair and Lyon alike could see the writing on the wall and felt the need to end the threat of pro-Confederate militia as soon as possible. Note that the militia was, in itself, quite legal, and if anything had a slightly more legitimate basis than the pro-Union Home Guard. The State Guard claimed to simply be on a routine training exercise. Now that said, this fooled no one except those who wished to be fooled. Yet it also avoided any obvious pretext for action on the part of Lyon. He couldn't just surround them and start shooting and then drag them off in chains without some legal basis for doing so, even after Fort Sumter. Of course, the militia were obviously preparing for war. Lyon knew very clearly they were going to attack the arsenal. But Nathaniel Lyon, of all people, never really wanted to sit around and wait for events. Instead, he borrowed a carriage from, of all people, Frank Blair's mother-in-law, and went on an inspection tour to see the problem for himself. According to Fish stories about it, Lyon dressed up in a dress and a thick veil to hide himself, which was rather impressive considering he was well-built and wore a thick beard. This seems, however, to have been an exaggeration of the basic story. Civil War tall tales often involved ruined men digging around in dresses. Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis received ridicule for it in turn. The real importance here was that no one paid Lyon's carriage any mind. On his spy mission, he confirmed that the militiamen were openly waving Confederate flags and came armed with stolen Federal weapons, in addition to brazenly cheering for Jeff Davis. That was all the evidence he needed. Lyon wasted no time in assembling his troops. On May 10th of 1861, he marched 3,000 home guardsmen boldly up to the burgeoning rebel camp, surrounded them, and demanded their surrender forthwith. The Home Guard, mostly Germans, were more than just a common militia unit. Many of these men had fought for democracy in the revolutions of 1848. They did not all have professional training, certainly, but they knew their business. On the flip side, the pro-Confederate militia were not hardened soldiers. Some were border ruffians, but none had military discipline yet. Confederates or not, commissioned by Governor Jackson or not, the men were neither stupid nor fanatics. They accepted the offer and handed over their arms. No shots were fired, and no blood was shed in this, arguably the first land battle of the war. Unfortunately, this did not end the issue, as Lyon's home guard walked into a ferocious mess of his own making. The very next day, Lyon paraded his captives through the streets of St. Louis, in a calculated show of strength to dissuade any other Confederate sympathizers. This was a bad move on its own, and unnecessary. Lyon's math skills failed to count up the weight of a mob and the nervousness of his officers. Many St. Louis residents favored the South, even if few owned slaves. Even those who didn't thought the demonstration very questionable, especially given that Lyon had technically just ambushed civilians and was now behaving like a triumphing Caesar. The fact that the Home Guard recruited heavily from the German portion of the Missouri population gave the whole thing an ugly character of an ethnic squabble, and more than a few in a crowd called out invective and hurled insults. That might still have been the end of it, but it was Baltimore all over again. Some bright spark in the crowd, nobody knows whom, pulled out a revolver and emptied it into the soldiers' ranks. Seeing his men gunned down in a cowardly fashion, Colonel Henry Burstein lost his head and ordered a rifle volley into the crowd. 
The soldiers, shocked and off-balance and responding to the one voice with clear instructions, followed the order. Unfortunately, this was no way to restore discipline or calm the situation. The crowd began hurling paving stones or bricks literally torn from the streets and buildings, while those with pistols began firing them off wildly. Of all the possible witnesses to this display, William T. Sherman and his son happened to be present. They threw themselves on the ground to avoid the clash as it became a riot, and then ran for safety. Many others didn't get that chance. Ninety people were injured, and at least one soldier took a fatal bullet. Twenty-eight civilians perished. Throughout the following night, random Germans were murdered by vengeful mobs roaming the streets. Lyon took a hard line, he reassembled his men, and brought a swift and decisive order to the city at the tip of a bayonet the next morning. That ended the immediate crisis, but the incident still led to terrible consequences. General Harmy, who happened to be away from the city when all this trouble began, rushed back in horror at the complete chaos unleashed. But a frustrated Frank Blair had had just about enough of weak-willed leadership and doubled down on Lyon. Now, Harney tried to smooth over the issue and prevent further violence, but events had moved past them. He would soon be packed off into semi-retirement, replaced in the short term by newly commissioned Brigadier General Lyon, who jumped four grades in as many months. In the short term, however, Harney was probably correct. The unnecessary bloodshed led to a swift hardening of attitudes across the political lines in Missouri. Even as Unionists denounced the mob, those with milder Southern sympathies increasingly stepped over to support the Confederacy, including Sterling Papp Price. Price had just recently been a Unionist-leading chair of the convention, but now his charismatic leadership helped pull in recruits that otherwise might have stayed home or even joined the Union forces. And on the far edge of the state, the violence on the border between Kansas and Missouri flared back up, this time taken to a level never before seen. Bleeding Kansas would not see its wounds staunch for another four cruel years. But this time, the Jayhawkers were done. They would deliver as many brutal blows as they received. At the state capitol in Jefferson City, word of the carnage in St. Louis precipitated a crisis, but one which Governor Jackson initially believed would turn in his favor. The legislature voted for emergency powers, more or less, and in theory they effectively began resisting the authority of the United States. But I say, in theory. In practice, they could only scrounge up a handful of hardy souls, a few weapons, and most of the state remained unionist despite the shocking events. In early June, Governor Jackson and Sterling Price, the latter taking command of what militia were available, sat down for a negotiation with Blair and Lyon in St. Louis. And here we get another example of the difference between Lyon and Harney, for better or worse. The meeting was never going to end smoothly, but in theory there might have been some wiggle room to end the hostilities before they began. The problem lay in the fact that Governor Jackson, though democratically elected, was now wildly out of touch with popular opinion and political reality, not to mention engaging in treason. Missouri, far from joining the South, actually appears to have been the least pro-Confederate border state. Meanwhile, General Lyon, as proud as his namesake, had about as much patience for traitors as he did for cowards. Not darn much. 
On paper, Governor Jackson asked only for quote-unquote neutrality. But shots had been fired in anger now, and neither Blair nor Lyon particularly trusted any Confederate at his word. Lyon finally broke the impasse by simply declaring, Rather than concede to the state of Missouri for one single instant the right to dictate to my government in any matter, however unimportant, I would see you and you and you and you and every man, woman, and child in the state dead and buried. This means war. And, well, when Lyon declared war, he meant war. In fact, he almost immediately began a march on Jefferson City, and he occupied it on June 10th. Sterling Price and Governor Jackson fled impotently northwest towards Boonville. Lyon no doubt recognized the political importance of Jefferson City, but it also provided a good strategic base in the center of the state. He hoped to catch the Confederate militiamen immediately, 40 miles away, but the latter had been reinforced by a good 1,500 cavalry under Joe Shelby, who had been one of the most prolific organizers of border ruffian activity. The additional numbers, and the fact that they were well-mounted, made the group very difficult to pin down, even if they would not stand up to a prolonged fight. General Lyon, with 6,000 men, quickly landed a force at Boonville, and forced the now openly declared Confederates to flee once again. However, Jackson and Price had word that a sizable contingent was coming up from Arkansas. They believed that if the two forces united, they would have double Lyon's numbers. Accordingly, Governor Jackson and Sterling Price realized there was little or nothing to be gained and much to be lost by trying to face down the motivated, well-led, and heavily armed Federals with their scratched-together force. Accordingly, they divided the army and, less encumbered than the Federals, they just about all slipped away. The First Battle of Boonville ended with no more than a handful of casualties on either side. The Confederates lost around 80 captured men, and likely some more slipped away on the march afterwards. It was not a complete success for either side, but both probably felt some measure of satisfaction. The retreat of Jackson had some profound effects on the course of the war in the West. First, it knocked the wind out of the many Confederate sympathizers almost as quickly as the bloodshed in St. Louis had stirred it up. The sight of the governor fleeing to another state did little to bolster pro-Southern morale, and the Northern press had a field day lionizing their new hero, and simultaneously mocking his defeated opponents. That said, Lyon's actions also effectively ended law and order in half the state, turning much of the western portion and a good chunk of neighboring Kansas into a murderous killing ground of private vendettas and raids. Although nominally partisans of the Confederacy, for the remainder of the war years, gangs fought out their own private conflict, with no more than vague gestures in the directions of slavery or any political theory. They took little notice of the larger war, accepted no orders from Richmond, and did as they pleased. Men such as the Younger Brothers and Jesse James enthusiastically participated and made a smooth transition towards a life of crime thereafter. Yet Lyon also contributed to early federal confidence, and not just in the West. Union soldiers, though pushed to the extreme in the frantic struggle to arm and deploy quickly, performed very well in the first months of the war, and began a sustained advance in nearly every theater of operations available. More battles would follow, but federal power in Missouri was never again seriously threatened, and in fact the lack of aggression in that state 
was more due to the relative lack of strategic importance compared to the Mississippi River campaigns in Northern Virginia. All that being said, we'll return to Missouri quite soon. But next time, we'll join a very different theater of battle, the Coastal War. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining, and I hope you'll come back next time.